All right, ready? What is it? Figure eight. Incredible. That's five for five. You can't see these, can no, you? No, no. You're not cheating me, are you? No, I swear, they're just coming to me. <laughs> okay, nervous? Yes. I don't like this. You only have 75 more to go. Okay, what's this one? It's, it's a couple of wavy lines. Sorry, this isn't your lucky day. I know. Get a little tired of this! You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were gonna be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here, anyway? I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is! It's pissing me off! Well, then maybe my theory is correct! You can keep the five bucks I've had! I will, mister! Hey everybody, what's up? For this week's episode, we are going to be interviewing Michael Grasso, or Grasso, I'm not sure. I, Mike, I know you're listening. I'm sorry. I have yet again butchered your name, even though I asked you to pronounce it before we started recording. I know, I'm a poor podcaster host. Anyways, uh, Michael writes for the really cool blog, wearethemutants.com. And wearethemutants.com is a blog that looks at all of the, uh, it looks at pop culture and all of the stuff that had to do with Cold Cold War era United States and all of these really cool things from that time period. But specifically why he's on the show is tonight to talk about the whole phenomena of the government's role and basically research in the phenomena of ESP and remote viewing and all of these different things that took place between the 60s, 70s, up through the 80s, and a little bit beyond. And we cover all kinds of ground here. Uh, Stargate, um, remote viewing, uh, a little bit about the men who stare at goats. Uh, we also cover the effect that this had on pop culture, um, all that kind of stuff. This is probably one of the favorite shows that I have recorded this week. As you may have guessed, Lobo is not here. Uh, Lobo, this week, I uh, couldn't make it because it was his wedding anniversary. And as I told you before, April's going to be kind of a nutty month for both of us. But he did manage to book us a really cool interview coming up uh, next month in May. So props to him for that. I was really proud that he did that. It was pretty cool. But uh, I am kind of joined by uh, Joe from Ozone Nightmare. He handles some of the co-hosting duties in this show. And before we get started, I do want to say that I stole some of his thunder and some of the stuff that we talk about, I kind of yanked from him without really even thinking about it because we were talking before the show and during the show we were tweeting stuff back and forth, kind of ideas of what we were going to talk about and so forth. And um, I just kind of grabbed a bunch of stuff from him and, and kind of ran with it. But um, as I said, this is one of my favorite interviews. Do go check out wearethemutants.com. And lastly, a big, big shout out goes out to Allison Thurman, a previous guest of the show, friend of the show, for pointing me in the direction of this blog and saying, hey, go check these guys out. I love this blog. I'm here every couple of days checking stuff out. It's a lot of fun. It's really cool. And I highly recommend it. And uh, that's it. So I'll see you guys at the other side. We are joined tonight by Michael Grasso. Michael Grasso is one of the writers for the fantastic blog, We Are the Mutants. And I contacted you. I am a big reader of your blog. Um, with me is oh, Joe from Ozone Nightmare, and he is a big fan of your blog. 
And then I saw that you were posting stuff up there. Me and Joe were talking about this before we added you on, that you have a very specific and different set of interests from most of the stuff that's posted on there. Like <laughs> a lot of stuff yeah. you see posted on there is for like G.I. Joe cartoons or they had a thing in there about how grids played such a big thing in sight, you know, the prominence of cyberspace and all this stuff, which I was sure. under the impression when I was growing up that cyberspace was going to be a lot more grid like than it is now after seeing fun <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Um, but you've got things on there like uh, teaching machines and, and flying saucers and, and ghost huntings and things like or ghost phenomena and things like that, sure. which a lot of that stuff is right up our alley. But specifically what triggered me was the ESP teaching machines. And you had an article on there, uh, ESP teaching machines from 1971 to 1973. And I said, you know, this is something that's always kind of interested me because the government did take a very, very big active interest in that. So I shot you an email saying, hey, could you come on and talk about this? And then you sent me this big, long dissertation of stuff that we're going to cover, (laughs) which promptly freaked me out. And then I emailed Joe and said, ah, this guy might be a little big of a game for us. So, (laughs) Jeez. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm really excited. I've I've, uh, listened to a bunch of your episodes at this point. And again, yeah, the topics that you guys cover are, again, right in my wheelhouse. You know, We Are the Mutants was kind of put together as a you know, a blog to look at all of the weird stuff from the Cold War era. So that includes pop culture. That includes the, you know, sort of the crossover between, you know, science and science fiction. And, you know, yeah, I think I do write more of sort of the paranormal, supernatural stuff for the blog. But all three of us who are editors on that site uh, really dig that stuff. But they've they've definitely seeded me that territory um, uh, on the blog. So it's, um, you know, I, I started off with that flying saucer book that I got at our local um, uh, here in Cambridge, Mass., the local... Uh, uh, occult bookstore seven stars and it had this really like you know weird inscription in it and so that sent me down a rabbit hole of research on uh cedric allingham and sort of the 1950s uh, uh you know contactee movement um uh, but uh i the the way i kind of got into this 1970s esp research is kind of through the real science that was attached to it i mean it's all kind of you know in the 70s there was a lot less borders between I guess what we would call science and what we would call pseudoscience, you know, and I think that, you know, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But that's kind of how I got into looking into these things like, you know, remote viewing research and ESP research and that kind of thing. So where do I guess let's start at the beginning where the uh, early days of J.B. J.B. Ryan at uh, Duke University, he was I, was he the first person to really start looking into this stuff with a scientific aspect to it and start taking it out of the realm of the hokiness? Yeah, that's correct. Um, He kind of split off from the American Society for Psychical Research, who were more sort of from that spiritualist sort of um, lineage from the 19th century, uh, going all the way back to, you know, amateur mediums and that kind of thing. And I think that you're right that, you know, what Ryan wanted to do is add a little bit more scientific rigor to things. You know, the, the folks who were doing the psychic research at the end of the 19th century, there certainly were some scientists there, you know, William James, who was a uh, a Harvard, uh, you know, experimental psychologist who was looking into, you know, the five senses and how, you know, the human brain works through those. And, and you know, they were they were all willing to kind of consider the idea that there might be something beyond this world. But they th- it was definitely still cloaked in that in that spiritualist sort of uh, vibe. And uh, Ryan, you know, kind of took his ball and went home and, as you say, went down to Duke and, you know, established this lab where he could actually do, you know, laboratory research on, uh, clairvoyance, predictive, ESP, that sort of thing. Wasn't he more of a like a skeptic and a debunker of spiritualism as well, or am I confusing him with somebody else? No, you're not. He got into a little bit of a tiff with um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, actually. Uh, you know, Conan Doyle oh, was yeah. A, yeah. a big believer in this sort of thing. There was a um, 
they were there was a specific case that they were debunking in the 1920s about a a medium who you know ended up becoming you know discovered as a fraud and uh arthur conan doyle published a, an article uh you know attacking ryan and the title of it was jb ryan is an ass <laughs> and uh you know th- these people especially with conan doyle you know he he had the, that fairy hoax that um, the cottingley fairies and like oh yeah you know, he, sticks to the paper cutouts exactly yeah. like you know he was a big believer and and he kind of got um you know he, he would kind of get a little bit uh, offended if people came in with that sort of debunking uh mentality and and again this is going to be a, a pattern we're going to see again and again the the porousness of borders between believers and debunkers, you know, a lot of people go back and forth, you know, throughout this history of uh, academic research into the uh, uh, into psychic abilities. So how did he go from being a, a skeptical debunker of spiritualism to jumping into ESP? You would think they would go from one right to the other hand in hand. Well, I, yeah, I, I think what it is is that, like, you know, a lot of these people, you know, again, all the way back to Rhine and then all the way through sort of the, the history of psychic research, you know, they, they want to believe, not to, you know, rip off, uh, you know, the oh, yeah, X-Files yeah. thing, but they, but they really want to believe. And the way that they feel like they can prove it is through these, you know, again, established scientific methods. And, you know, when you think about the scientific method as we kind of know it today, it's a fairly recent development kind of, you know, uh, I guess philosophically and metaphysically. So, you know, these laboratory experiments that they put together, they look kind of, um, they look kind of rudimentary to our eyes, but, you know, they were, you know, cutting edge at the time. I mean, you know, when it comes to predicting the future, random number generation is obviously sort of the, the easiest way to do it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Ryan just did it with dice. You know, he would just basically roll dice. And, of course, he had Zenner working for him who developed those um, famous Zenner cards that we all know with the five symbols on them. So, mm-hmm. you know, these were all very – you could do these in your in your parlor. You know, they, they don't really require a lot of special equipment. But what we're going to see as we go into the 1970s is that – the merger of this kind of research with technology becomes a big part of, uh, you know, how this becomes a more, uh, I guess, accepted field of research once we get past the, uh, once we get into the Cold War period. Okay, well, let's go there next then, because the 70s sounds like where you want to be. So let's, but to get there, we have to go through all this other stuff, I guess. So yeah, let's go through the 70s, because you also listed in here uh, Soviet psychotronics 1960s. So how hmm. do the Russians become involved in this? Well, yeah, that's a super interesting story. The, um, you know, the Soviet Union throughout the 60s was starting to kind of leak out these stories about, you know, uh, brave sort of, you know, uh, you know, psychic uh, uh, users uh, for the people, you know, sort of these, um, uh, you know, people who have been in labs and like tested uh, by Soviet scientists. And these stories would leak across the Iron Curtain and they would generate a lot of interest in the West. And then there would be these very carefully sort of... um, uh, these carefully sort of managed uh, uh, witnesses that would come in from the U.S. and from the and Western Europe to take a look at some of these. Some of them were on film. Um, and there was a book that came out in the late 60s by um, a pair of researchers, uh, Sheila Ostrander and Lynn Schroeder. And they went uh, into Russia, Romania, um, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia to uh, look at all these different uh, Warsaw Pact psychics. And their book is called uh, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. It is a fantastic read. Um, One of the, you know, they called it psychotronics on the other side of the the Iron Curtain. And to them, they, from the very beginning, decided this is, you know, obviously, you Soviet communists, you've got materialism there. So they look at everything as a, as a sort of physical uh, phenomenon. And they investigated it from the very beginning in a very 
scientific materialistic fashion but of course you know the soviet union has a long history of pseudoscience of its own you know like senkoism etc so you know they're dealing with sort of these quote-unquote cutting edge you know areas of research and really what a lot of people ended up thinking after this sort of wave of psychotronics in the 60s and early 70s happened is that these might have been disinfo you know campaigns by the soviets to get the Americans going down these rabbit holes. <laughs> Not possible. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fake news, you know, ni- exactly. late 1960s style, you know. But um, that, that's kind of the, the the consensus these days. But there was a lot of interest. I mean, uh, aside from the fact that in the, early, in the late 1960s in America, there's this new age, age of Aquarius kind of thing happening on college campuses amongst the intelligentsia. You know, you got people like Timothy Leary, you know, there's a lot of um, research happening into, you know, again, what kind of senses go beyond normal. And when when all of these stories come across from from the, the Soviet bloc, it's like, oh, no, we can't have a psychic gap. We have to, you know, put some actual research. Into yeah, it kind of triggered a psychic Cold War from what I'm gathering from everything that I'm seeing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that sort of the the scientific researchers who were working, you know, for the armed forces and intelligence in the United States at that point, they really were willing to try anything and uh, and and match the Soviets if they they had reasonable uh, belief that there was uh, something going on that was worth investigating across uh, across the Iron Curtain. I was listening to NPR last week, and they had a woman on there who she wrote a book about DARPA, and her name escapes me right now. But she had brought up on there that the U.S. started doing an experiment because they had heard that the Russians were doing an experiment, and the experiment was that they somebody somewhere in the process believed that mother rabbits would know when their babies were killed or something was happening to their babies. Yes. So America, you've heard this story before? I, I've heard <laughs> I've heard stories like it. I mean, here's the thing. Like, if you look into any of these kind of animal ESP, uh, uh, you know, research stories, and I, I actually recently, a couple of years ago, bought the, the DVD set of In Search Of, there's a lot of monkey torture in these labs in the 60s and 70s when they're <laughs> investigating. I mean, there is a lot of like, you know, but yeah, they take the baby rabbit away and then like they try to see if the if the mother yeah. can tell if it's being harmed. Yeah, they it's, wanted to do that for submarines because they can't. They at the time they had a hard time getting radio signals to go underwater to submarines. Okay, the mm-hmm. nuclear war started has started. Hit the button, launch the missiles. They were trying to experiment with a way to be able to send a signal out without it being hampered or anything. So they said, well, why don't we put the baby, uh, the mother rabbit in a boat and we'll keep a baby rabbit for each submarine and then we'll kill the baby rabbit to see if the mother rabbit reacts. And if you're on the sub out in the middle of the ocean, the mom rabbit starts freaking out, then we need to launch the nukes, which is pretty freaky. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it, it is incredibly freaky, but it's, you know, it's, it's really funny scary, that you mentioned- you know? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because the submarine obviously is one situation where there's, you know, great distance and and, and interference for traditional sort of radio transmissions. The other one that that Americans started looking into um, psychic powers about was space travel. And uh, NASA was one of the first uh, government agencies to actually start funding uh, psychic uh, and remote viewing and clairvoyance research because they wanted a way to be able to have, you know, communications go back and forth between uh, you know, space capsules that were, you know, this was right around the the, the height of the Apollo program. So mm-hmm. uh, they were, you know, working with places like the Stanford Research Institute to work on, you know, non um, non technological ways of communicating with uh, with people who are going to be in space. So let's move on to the fun topic. Yes. Um, let's start in 1970s with Stargate. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, this is um, uh, this, this is, is a, a long... this is such a long mired. This is one of the great like urban legends that ties into ufology and all of the strange stuff from back in that time period. Because there are so many uh-huh. like crazy stories and legends revolving around Stargate. You would need a gigantic cork board with tons of red, you know, string tied between all these different points to kind of, I mean, everybody had a, had a finger in this pie. I mean, it was, like I said, NASA was a, was a funder, obviously CIA and NSA were involved. Um, really the, the, the focus of, of this research in the early seventies was in the Bay area at the Stanford research Institute. So SRI uh, came about, it was one of those great sort of early Cold War era think tanks that came about coming up with ways not just to beat the Russians, but kind of like to reinforce the the sort of emergent cybernetic consensus uh, in the post uh, post uh, World War II period. So, you know, SRI, their mandate is to just go and like innovate. It's pure research. It's the kind of stuff that the government was throwing dollar after dollar into during the Cold War. You know, SRI came up with stuff we take for granted every day now, like you know, when you write a check, there's like those, you know, digits at the bottom. SRI invented those to help banks scan checks quicker. You know, all kinds of consumer technology came out of the SRI research in the 50s and 60s. Um, you may be familiar with the what the computer historians call the mother of all demos in 1968. That was a, um, a demonstration where uh, things that we take for granted now, like like Skype, like a computer mouse, like, you know, multitasking between word processing and, you know, video conferencing. In 1968, SRI-associated uh, researchers, you know, demoed that for the world, you know, 20 to 25 years ahead of when it was even going to be plausible to have this as a widespread piece of technology. So SRI is a cutting-edge research institute affiliated with Stanford University. And so when the early 70s come about, as I said, you know, the world is – the world is changing out there. It's the age of Aquarius. There's people believing in all kinds of paranormal stuff. And that stuff starts to leak into these mainstream research institutes. What kind of experiments were they doing? Well, really, the, the two men who were kind of the, the center of this uh, world uh, at SRI of psychic research uh, were a couple of individuals named Harold Putoff and Russell Targ. They were both electrical engineers. They'd also worked with early laser applications. And, you know, basically they both came to this field of psychic research just from their own personal interests. Um, you know, again, this is the Bay Area in the late 60s. You've got to picture the kind of people who are working for these cutting edge science institutes. They're also interested in stuff like meditation, like, um, uh, you know, uh, hallucinogenic drugs. Like there, there's a lot of things bubbling under the surface that are kind of making their way into these cutting edge research institutes. And so both of these guys were like, well, you know what? Let's let's put some feelers out there. Let's see if we can start doing some actual lab re, lab psychic research, like Ryan did and and is still doing because he's still alive at this point. He's very old, but the Ryan Institute is still going strong in the '70s. So at SRI, they're like, well, maybe we can find some government, you know, funding uh, to continue this kind of research. And they put the feelers out, and NASA was one of the first um, government agencies to give them some some support. Um, what uh, Targ put together was this learning machine that I was uh, talking about on We Are the Mutants, and it's basically a very simple apparatus. It's um, you know, it's a it's a box with four buttons on it, and you know, the the box asks you to pick the light that's going to light up before it lights up, and if you um, if you choose incorrectly, it'll say eh, wrong. And if you choose correctly, it gives you a little bit of a, 
you know, like a little message, like after five in a row, if you get them correctly, it gives you a message saying, hey, you're a, you're an aspiring psychic. And sort of like the idea wasn't just to test people's psychic ability. It was to test the effect of positive reinforcement. Oh, I on wanted it to be the ability. one where you get zapped if you get it wrong or something like that. Hey, like, listen, we'll talk it. We'll talk about go- <laughs> we're going to talk about Ghostbusters because Ghostbusters is super important in this story. But let me let me <laughs> let me get back to what happened there. So what they decided to do was to help with the funding before NASA had come through with the full stipend, they said, why don't we make this into an arcade game? And again, this is the early 70s. There's really just pinball machines and like, you know, sort of like, you know, uh, you know, like driving simulators and stuff like that. Very primitive. There's no real video games. These are like arcade like novelties, like a strength machine or a love tester. They put out this ESP machine. They put it into two pizza parlors in the Bay Area. Is this Polybius? No, but I know. Stop Polybius. <laughs> no, I'm doing a the... show on Just Polybius checking. soon, but yes. I was going to say, because, man, that's the one I always hear about. All right. <laughs> so it's the same precept. It's like, you know, it's an ESP tester. You put a quarter in and you do like 20 rounds of trying to guess the button and you get the love tester, you know, style like, hey, you're a you're a wizard or you're a psychic or whatever. The thing is, like. You know, to get into a lot of arcades nationwide at that point, you actually had to work with Tark says in his in his memoir, you had to work with these these gentlemen who, you know, were into like, you know, cigarette machines and vending machines, you know, kind of like a mafia element. And he, he jokes around and says, these guys didn't know what ESP was, so they didn't want to buy the machine for widespread distribution. So they only ever went into two pizza parlors in the Bay Area. So if you've got one of these in your garage right now and you're listening to this podcast, if you've got one of Targ's original ESP machines, you could probably sell that for a pretty penny. I wanted to ask you something else. This is going to sound really odd. Um, I had read that Harold Putoff is uh, Putoff. Is that what his name is? Putoff. Yeah. Was he involved with Scientology, or does Scientology have a part in this because of L. Ron Hubbard's e-meters? I know that sounds bizarre, but no, no, it's not bizarre. That is exactly correct. That was true. You know, yeah, I mean, these guys, again, like, think about every every group that's kind of bubbling up in California in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Scientology, EST, uh, there's the Esalen Institute where, you know, again, all this new age stuff is happening. Um, the guy who did the mother of all demos, he was an, uh, he was an adherent of Werner Erhardt and uh, tried to bring EST precepts into SRI. Um, I was just reading the uh, Jacques Vallée um, diaries from the 70s. And he said every time he went to go visit um, uh, this guy, what's his name, uh, Douglas Engelbart, he said every time I would go to SRI and visit his lab, his employees were more and more angry about all of these EST precepts that he was trying to put into his management style. So these guys, th- these guys were involved in what we would consider these days kind of like, you know, pseudo cult kind of stuff. And you're right, Putoff was an, uh, he was an OT7. Oh, God. Which is pretty high, yeah. <laughs> that's because um, he probably had money and he was throwing a lot of it at him. <laughs> that's kind of what <laughs> yeah, I'm... Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, yeah. The aliens are at bay, yeah, just keep giving us that check. <laughs> yeah, but again, his research, I mean, the reason why he got into the research is because he was interested in this kind of stuff, because again, what did Scientology promise you if you got up to those higher levels? You could have power over, you know, mind over matter and, and stuff like that, so... It's um it it they're all kind of woven together. Like I said, if you put together your crazy wall of you know relationships between all these different groups in California in the sixties and seventies, they're all tied together. So where does the CIA jump into this, and what is the CIA? Is this is this where the legend of the Montauk Peninsula comes from? Does that play a part in this? You know, Montauk. I I always thought Montauk was more of a sort of um, like zero energy kind of research thing. I I, I I'm not as I'm not as up on Montauk as I would like to be. I got a couple of friends who, when they listen to this podcast, are probably 
slapping their foreheads going, Mike, oh, why yeah. did you bring up on yeah, Montauk? Yeah, because they have the chair in there. <laughs> what the, the Part of the legend of the Montauk Peninsula is they had a chair there. They would put you in this chair, and it was a psychic enhancer. Uh, mm. Again, this is all the legend and stuff to it. But you would right. sit in this chair, and it would enhance your psychic abilities. And somebody uh, at uh, some point or other brought a, a psychic electric Sasquatch into being, which is what destroyed the base. And I'm probably getting the story wrong, so your friends that are probably listening to this are also going to want to gut me. Um, <laughs> but apparently the Sasquatch, the electric Sasquatch, I'm sorry, psychic electric Sasquatch was named Junior, and it went on a rampage and destroyed the base. Um, oh my God! <laughs> yeah, which is where the, a lot of a lot of the show Stranger Things is based on the Montauk legend. Um, you know, that was the thing, right? Because like originally when they proposed the show, they were going to call it Montauk yeah. instead of on Long Island. Yeah. yeah. So for whatever reason, it didn't work. So they used a lot of the background story. What if you watch the shows, you can see the parables between the two. The uh, vegetable monster thing is the parable for the the little girl with the psychic experiments is who brings uh, it into being from the oh. other world and stuff. But there was a lot of uh, purportedly a lot of psychic research going along those lines and reprogramming and things like that. It all kind of ties together. Uh, but the crux of it was as they were doing experiments on psychics to try to um, make manifest uh, thoughts for the lack of a better explanation for it. Yeah. Um, and they were doing a lot of this stuff. It was like some CD sub-government organization or what have you. And they were mm-hmm. actually going out and kidnapping. Uh, the legend is they would go out and kidnap um, you know, kids like uh, runaways kids. and stuff like that. Yeah. So no, if they nobody yeah, noticed yeah. them missing, they would just throw them into the van, take them out to the Montauk Island or, or Montauk Peninsula and you know, do what they were going to do with them. Joe, did you know any yeah, of this? Is that the is that the is that the same dimension that the uh, Philadelphia experiment boat jumped through? Is that all linked? Is this a uh, cinematic universe can... basically of psychic stuff? Well, <laughs> since none of it has theoretically been proven, then yes, I, I suppose you could say that. Because uh, I know they said on that boat when it rematerialized, there apparently had been somebody who was invisible who was wrecking the uh, like a bar where it was parked and they couldn't see him. So they yeah. theorized that and he was were, stuck yeah. partially in the other dimension. So, and they worked for, Yo-Yo I mean, Yo-Yo if it was all coming from the same place. I mean, why not? And they worked for Yo-Yo <laughs> Dine Industries. <laughs> yeah. It's Yo-Yo Dine Propulsion. That's right. So yeah, that's how it all, that, that that's, that's part of it was all tied into this and stuff. I thought Stargate was tied into, tied into that as well though. Um, well, I mean, that's the thing is like, so obviously, like we said with, with the whole Soviet psychotronics thing, the CIA has definitely had an eye on these guys. And I think that the CIA, funding actually comes later and of course that never comes directly that's always put under some kind of like you know cover story or well, shell corporation yeah. <laughs> exactly so they even today targ and um, and put off are kind of cagey about exactly what came when but if if you go to archive.org and you do a search for project stargate i know recently people have said a whole bunch of new documents have been put up but the original package that's up there like the zip file it's got it's got thousands of documents in there. They're all declassified CIA, and it's basically the entire story of put off in Targ's lab. So even if the CIA wasn't directly funding them, they were definitely keeping an eye on them, and they were definitely monitoring this research and keeping in communication with these guys at SRI. And so when these um, experiments started, kind of you know getting a, be- a bigger uh, profile in 73, 74, and you have people like uh, Uri Geller and Ingo Swan and Pat Price, who are their sort of star remote viewers. Um, and again, at this point, Yuri Geller is actually, you know, he's famous in the real world. He's going on, you know, Mike Douglas and, you know, all these other shows and Bending Spoons and stuff. I mean, again, here we go with sort of like, are, you know, are these people, you know, illusionists and magicians, you know, well, are they con men? I can't remember which one. One of them was on a show where he was, he was said he could move pencils with his mind. 
So somebody came on and put a glass box over the pencil and said, move that pencil with your mind, and he couldn't do it. I don't remember yeah, who it, it was. I think that might have been Geller. I mean, I, I know that obviously the the amazing Randy James Randy was kind of you know his his uh, his bet noir during those years, yeah. and I think he was he was one of the big debunkers. He would go on Carson and like you know demonstrate exactly how they did all these things, and and so but but you know Yuri Geller spent a lot of time at SRI in the in the early you know sort of the first half of the seventies. Uh, Ingo Swan is another character from this period who's kind of interesting. He was an artist and. Uh, you know, again, you know, purported that he had psychic powers and, you know, the remote viewing experiments that um, happened after this sort of ESP training experiments went off. The the, the standard remote viewing was like, OK, we're going to send some of our lab folks out into the field. And it was usually somewhere in the Bay Area, like Palo Alto or something like that. We're going to have them sit and look at a structure or a, a landscape and concentrate on it. And then the guys back at uh, SRI are going to try to connect with them and see what they see through their eyes. You know, later on, remote viewing became like, oh, here are the coordinates in the Soviet Union. You know, scry on these for a while. Use use remote viewing on these. But at the beginning, it was kind of like the rabbit thing you were talking about. It was person to person uh, style experiments. And again, you know, you can read these records in this archive.org, you know, zip file and say, Oh wow, these are really eerie. The, some of these sketches look a lot like what uh, these people were looking at out in Palo Alto. And then the other half, of you can go, well, let me read the transcripts. And oh yeah, there's a lot of cold reading going on here. <laughs> you know, like yeah. people like Geller knew, and and people like Swan knew how to like ask the right questions or um, to sort of tease the answers out of the people who were kind of recording their answers back at the lab. And so you know, again, none of this stuff was ever proven to any kind of like. Well, level they did have a good success rigor. rate, though, with it, though, didn't they? They, they had well, a fairly the, decent success rate, but it, it was like 40% or something like that. They said that wasn't enough, or I don't remember the exact reasons why, because it's been yeah, theorized I mean, the that thing. it was tremendously successful, so they said, no, this is not successful. We need to shut this down right now and continue doing it underground. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sex, success rates for something like remote viewing, they're all kind of relative when you get right down to it. I mean... When you want absolute reproducibility of a scientific experiment, you want something in the 90% range. So obviously for scientific purposes, 40 is not great. But for, you know, for a field that doesn't have any history or have any real rigorous history and you tell the CIA we've got a 40% success rate, you know, all of a sudden they're like, well, that's better than zero. This must have something, you know, this must have some legitimate interest for us. And so, you know, again, like these things don't handle the, – the, they don't um, – stand up to reproducibility, but for the purposes of the CIA, you know, they're willing to take a flyer on it. I wonder what the success rate is. Well, if, if I read correctly, and maybe I'm wrong too, some of what I've read on this is, yes, the, the you, you can get an agency interested, but ultimately, again, 40% does not work over a long term. If you can't produce results, ultimately that's what they care about. It's kind of a, yeah. sort of a double side to it on the scientific side. You have so to the, be better than 40%, but on the actual um, real-world side, you're not going to go to somebody and say, well, mm. four times out of ten, I'll be able to tell you where the Soviet agent is. So, yeah. you know, maybe that'll work. They're just not going to run with that. And so it was yeah. ultimately kind of a, a black hole that it fell into. Now, yeah. here's the interesting thing. There's, there's one guy who had an incredible amount of detail that he, that he got out of his sketches, this guy Pat Price I mentioned earlier. And – the story behind him is that, like, you know, again, he was able to kind of see these gantries in the Soviet Union when they had started moving, you know, out of the local experiments into, like, okay, I'm from the CIA. I want you to, you know, scan this area. And he he sketched out these these gantries that were used for construction that were 
literally almost exactly like what they looked like over over in the Soviet Union once they finally got photographic um, intelligence about it. And so Pat Price, though, he died under mysterious circumstances. This is one of those great stories from this era that kind of, and it's from the mid-70s when, right when that, that sort of cowboy CIA thing was going to be taken, you know, down by the, the Ford administration's investigations after Watergate and stuff. So he apparently uh, made out a last will, got a bunch of life insurance, and then the next day he died of, quote, a heart attack. This was in like uh-huh. 75, 76. And so there's always been this sort of like even Targ himself goes – we still think that something kind of, you know, again, this is that Cajunist I was talking about earlier. We, we think something happened to Pat. Pulled up and threw him into it, and that was the last anybody seen of him. He had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Your like, family's well one, taken care of. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, the one successful guy, you know, ended up something having mysteri- mysterious having happened to him. Nothing ever happened to Ingo Swan or, or Yuri Geller on that front. So it's one. It's it, that's the one sort of like you know aspect of the story that still makes you kind of wonder. And of course, you know, we're talking about intelligence agencies. Misinformation and disinformation are a big part of their sort of, you know, uh, bailiwick. And, you know, anybody who actually demonstrated these kind of powers, you know, disappearing or having a mysterious heart attack is is pretty suspicious. Well, I'm looking at the um, there's an entry on Wikipedia for remote viewing, and it says that Project Star that Stargate the Stargate Project, if I could talk English correctly, it was a twenty million dollar research program. $20 million they put into this, at least that we know of. That's not that's just Stargate, not including all the programs that were around it. Right, um, yes. And it says something else later on. I go up, actually went up to, um, got close to a million <laughs> along hmm. those lines to, uh, to be able to pull this off. But I cannot find for the life of me any actual hard numbers of the amount of success rates they had with it. Because I've heard... I've heard I've heard different stories from different different podcasts, different books. Everybody kind of quotes a different amount of success rate. I think it was yeah. above 40. I've heard anywhere from like 40 to 60%. Uh, and yeah. that's, some of the people are complaining, well, 60% is a pretty good success rate. So why did they shut the project down then? You know, but Yeah, exactly. Well, here, so, you know, when, when put off in TARG kind of like, you know, all of this, you know, research was publicly available. I mean, like, you know, the, the stuff that they were doing at SRI anyway had to be because it was – you know, part of the research institute. Yeah. They would go in the mid seventies, they would go over to Europe where there were a lot of, um, uh, you know, sort of conferences happening about sort of psychic abilities, remote viewing. Again, you can picture that these, the hallways of these, you know, uh, conferences in Switzerland and stuff were just crawling with agents from both sides of the cold war. Um, but what I, the impression I got is that their results weren't really looked very well upon by the, experimental psychologists and philosophers who were kind of looking into this in Western Europe. And so, you know, they kind of lost a little bit of, I guess, cachet as far as like being the premier remote viewing, you know, lab in the world when they would actually present, present their results to other academics. So that might be where sort of their, their downfall started. I mean, both of them had plenty of other projects at SRI, like I said, in the electrical engineering and laser side of things that, you know, they were never going to be out of work. They were both really smart guys. But there was a point in the late 70s where this stuff stopped being like publicly talked about. And it kind of went back underground again, like you were talking about earlier. And that's when the U.S. Army steps in. And that's really that's really where sort of the Stargate at Fort Meade kind of started to take over from these uh, sort of independent uh, think tank and research institute uh, uh, research uh, so programs. Stargate came after after Stanford Research, or because I, I always thought that they were going on at the same time. 
they kind of put the entire history of it under that one umbrella term of Project Stargate. You know, okay. I think the official name actually was developed once it was under U.S. Army control, but they kind of back, you know, back included all of the the early '70s stuff uh, to be part of the uh, the overall program. I mean, you know, th- there's no real difference functionally between the CIA and the U.S. Army when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know so what I mean? What did the army do when they took over? Did they essentially do the same thing, or th- of course they tried to militarize it? You know, they they yes. Let's let's weaponize this. Of course, that's what you do. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is this is where sort of if you've if you've either read the John Ronson book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, or seen the movie. I mean, it's been a know, while, the, but yes, I did read it. It was a, I, the book was far better than the movie. It was far weirder. Because there were things oh, that they said that they couldn't put in the movie because they were just too weird. I mean, it, and, <laughs> and when you're making a, a, a science fiction oriented movie based on a book and they say it's too weird for them to put in the movie, uh, <laughs> it yeah, was a I pretty know. wild book. Um, I so, mean, you know, that book's full of, you know, that's full of a lot of interesting characters. Again, like the Yeah, the everybody sort of inter- in the book is interesting. Every character in that book is <laughs> It's that's that's what makes it so fantastical and almost non-believable because there's no average guy in that book. Everybody in there is something strange and weird. <laughs> and there's no other way to put it. <laughs> I mean, you've got um, you've got Albert Stubblebine, who is the um, the intel uh, officer that in the movie, he's the guy who tries to run through the wall, basically. Yeah. You know, he's he, he thinks he can meditate enough to be able to actually, tra- you know, phase through solid matter. You've got Jim Channon, who was the character that uh, Jeff Bridges played. And, you know, he basically played him like the big Lebowski, but in the army, like, but, but in reality, Jim Channon was this guy who went into the hot tubs of Esalen and like, you know, decided I, I fought in Vietnam, you know, war is horrible. If I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to be a warrior, I'm going to be a warrior monk and I'm going to try to bring peace to the world. And he put together this, um, uh, this idea of, uh, you know, an army that kind of worked through, uh, you know, this warrior monk, um, uh, paradigm to bring peace to the world uh, the the first Earth Battalion, you know, and if you've ever read the, I don't know if you, either of you ever read the first Earth Battalion's like foundation document, but it's this wonderful sort of like, like handmade kind of thirty six page comic book full of all of these like ideas about non lethal warfare. It's fantastic. So okay, well let's just jump into the minister at goats because that's such a fantastic story in itself. We could do an hour long show it. the The idea, the initial <laughs> idea behind the minister at goats was. They were trying to kill goats with their mind by staring at them. That was yeah, the more, idea. more more monkey torture, exactly. I mind mean, bullets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and like, you know, stop the heart of a goat with just the power of your mind. I mean, here's where the remote viewing, I mean, remote viewing was still the primary psychic power that they were trying to train people in. But there there becomes this idea that maybe you can start doing psychokinesis, you know, and you can start manipulating the environment rather than just uh, viewing it. And the, the psychokinesis part definitely goes back to that Soviet psychotronics, because if you look at sort of the history of what they were doing in the late sixties, you know, you talked about the, um, the psychic connection with the rabbits and everything, but they were also doing things about like healing and harming. Um, you guys know about the whole pyramid power thing where if you put like a razor blade inside of a hollow pyramid, it'll stay sharp. The Soviets were the ones who were like looking at that in, in great detail in the sixties. Um, but they were also looking into things like psychokinesis. They they had mediums. Again, they weren't army folks. They were just ordinary Soviet citizens um, who could do things like, you know, get people's heartbeats to skip if they stared at them enough and that kind of thing. So weaponizing this stuff, it definitely was something that the U.S. Army 
kind of got the idea from all of that earlier Soviet uh, uh, research. Now, Yuri, Yuri Geller and Ingo Swan were still around during this time, but they weren't involved with it at this, this point, right? They were out doing their I'm a Psychic Roadshow sideshow tour, correct? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, in the late 70s, there were some programs still going on. Obviously, Duke still had its program. Um, there was a program in New York City, actually, at the uh, Maimonides Medical Institute. Um, That's that where I was going Swan... next. So, yeah, it's yeah. a good way to transition into it. <laughs> That's such yeah, a, I'm it, glad you pronounced that because I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's named after the uh, I, I think medieval Jewish um, uh, philosopher, I think. And uh, it was, uh, you know, a private medical institute. And they had a lab there that had been doing like dream research, uh, basically like a sleep lab. But again, the guy who was in charge of it, this guy, Montague Ullman, also believed in the power of dreams like to do prophecy and telepathy. So he kind of got, again, in the in the late 60s, early 70s, kind of got into expanding the, the research uh, mandate of this dream lab into actual parapsychological research. And this is where you get into sort of the Gansfeld experiments and like uh, the idea is that if you if you shut off all of your other senses and kind of like a sensory deprivation and put pink noise in the earphones and ping pong ball halves over your eyes, like that will free your mind to be able to roam basically and astrally project anywhere. Um, Ingo Swan was was one of the people who uh, participated in these experiments again, and he was asked, you know, to sit in a room, cover up his eyes and ears, put the pink noise headphones on, and basically look at images that were being projected on a screen in a lab next door. The one I put up on uh, We Are the Mutants was they had put these random images up. One of them was the uh, the very short lived uh, series with the uh, uh, secret agent chimp Lancelot Link, you know, and I have to think if he was actually psychically projecting and saw a secret agent chimp in a screen, he probably wouldn't have believed that he was actually <laughs> seeing it. Um, I'm thinking maybe you should use shapes or colors or something like that. But they they kind of um, they kind of continued the research that had been happening at SRI, but on a much smaller level, on a much kind of more homely level and a, and a level that wasn't being funded actively by the government. Um, and, and these experiments, you know, like I said, they went on until the early 80s. Again, once they started publishing, people tried to reproduce it. The scientists said, no way, this actually, this stuff isn't actually happening. Um, all of these kind of, you know, <laughs> all of these stories kind of end anticlimactically because once these experiments kind of meet with actual, you know, scientific reproducibility, they kind of fall apart. But But again, people were spending money and time on these things, even when they weren't getting money from the government, which is... Just, just fascinating to me. And you know, another guy who set up his own institute was the uh, Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell, um, and he also set up an institute in the Bay Area uh, during the early '70s called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and that was more sort of a, a clearinghouse for a lot of different kinds of research. But there was definitely psychic research going on there too. Yeah, they're still around. I believe they still do the research. I get emails from them every once in a while. I've been oh, cool. trying for years to get them, get somebody from them to come on my show, but they never respond to me. Um, they were the uh, they were the people that measured like when somebody would die, they would measure if there was any uh, you know measurement and body weight of a soul leaving a body. Um, oh, the whole twenty one grams thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're still around. They're still they're still doing experiments, but they pretty much keep to themselves at this point. They, uh, you know, they've got a newsletter that goes out, and they've still got their website, and they still do stuff, but they're kind of. Um, 
I'm not sure if it's a membership only kind of thing now, which stuff like that kind of scares me or I kind of tend to want to back away from that. It's like, well, we'll share secrets, but you got to join us. Uh, I'm not sure if they're that way. The last right. time I heard I heard any kind of an interview with them was was on Art Bell, of course. That's pretty much only people that you know can get something along these lines. Yeah. But um, while I'm on this, it's that's not- a great trend. I was gonna say that's a great segue because man, once the once the Cold War ends, everybody tries to go into business for themselves as the 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 uh, the paramount r- remote viewer. Uh, and you can learn how to remote view too. Just yeah, we'll set, set up it. a class for you and come to our seminar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those who who are the who who's left from that that's still around doing that because it's still uh, happening Ed, now. Ed Dames is definitely still doing it. I went to his website tonight for uh, to research this for this uh, podcast. He's got you know you can get CD ROMs from him with uh, all kinds of uh, uh, advice on how to hone your psychic powers. Um, but again, like that's what happened. It's the peace dividend after the Cold War ends. You know these people who have been kind of making their they're living, um, you know, going into these army, you know, labs and trying to remote view to, to look at the Soviet Union. Once the Soviet Union's gone, they need a new gravy train. Again, not to sound too much like a skeptic, but let's be honest. Well, yeah, that's, how, know, that's how this stuff works, though. It's, it's the yeah, same uh, thing in the fields of ufology. These people go out and they tell their stories. And then when they've done the tour so many times, they have to change their story to make it relevant and be able to go back mm-hmm. on the tour and sell more books and stuff like that. It's the same thing with the field of... Uh, well, to a lesser extent, because these people, they, they've really stuck with their story and their story is I've done this and I can teach you to do it, too. Yes. You know, yes. That, so. That's the crucial part. Um, you know, I mean, think, I think they did have some um, they still were able to get occasional sort of government and, and intel and, and military interest. But a lot of the, the, the folks in the 90s who were going on, you know, coast to coast and that sort of thing. They actually, they actually got interest from some like corporate clients as well. You'll notice some of these folks were doing things like corporate security and those kind of things. Yeah. And, and you know, that's that, that's a that that those are definitely again porous borders between sort of you know you've got military experience, you can be a consultant, and you can also tell people, you know, hey, you know, how do you how can you tell if you've got you know uh, people who are uh, leaking secrets from your top secret sort of. Um, uh, corporate research. Well, here you go. Here are some methods you can use. And it's, you know, the, or you know, get you, secrets. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, who wouldn't want a remote remote view into Apple's testing labs? Um, right. Exactly. And and if you if you go to this, there's a site called remoteview.com. There's this great sort of like uh, timeline of all of the different remote viewers. And once 1989 kind of hits, you can see all of them go and form their own companies that each last about three to five years, basically. But you got like you got Dames again. You got Lynn Buchanan, who was another character in Men Who Stare at Goats. Um, and, you know, the, a lot of these people based themselves out of Hawaii. I think it seemed like every interview that happened in the mid 90s on Coast to Coast, the person who Art was interviewing lived in Hawaii. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like they all went there and kind of, you know, used the money that they got from their uh, remote viewing uh, contracts for the government to like, you know, buy up some real prime real estate on the big island. But all of these uh, private companies kind of started flourishing in the 90s. And as you say, the way to promote yourself was to go on shows like uh, like Art Bell. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time, Art Bell was one of the few people that was covering the stuff outside of like In Search of and stuff. You didn't have a lot of outlets for this kind of thing. And no, Art yeah, Bell the was- 80s was like a the 80s was like a dead zone for like uh, media that had to do with this kind of stuff. And it was really the early 90s, the growth of the Internet, uh, you know, pop culture stuff like the X-Files. And then. You know, when art came along, that was kind of the 
the beginning of, of this sort of uh, new flourishing in uh, looking at these kind of topics. Yeah, you had other people below him. Uh, Long John Neville was another one that was into stuff. Mm. None of them were as big as, as as Art Bell. Art Bell was yeah. the main critical one that pushed a lot of it. It's We've been talking about this, and it got me to thinking about this, um, about how much this has affected uh, culture and, and things like science fiction stuff from the 80s. Now, Joe, you're the big Stephen King guy. Um, Firestarter, oh, yeah. Firestarter was the... Uh, that was the psychic girl that could start flames or whatever. That was that was then that. Book oh yeah, Firestarter, yeah. Um, The Shining. Uh, I mean, almost all of his big books, in some way, tap into this idea that there is uh, like a psychic connection among people. I mean, even it, which is really basically an alien monster book, does tap into this idea that if you have a magical number of people, or I shouldn't say magical, if you have a certain number of people, there is a connection that is established that generates this power that was why the group of misfits had to be a certain number and that's why when spoiler alert i guess for this book when stan (laughs) dies the characters are genuinely afraid that they will no longer be able to take the the creature on it on Mm. because the number the circle and i don't remember if it was seven or nine i can't remember the exact number where that number was yeah i think it was seven when one of them was lost they didn't know if that was going to destroy what they had or diminish it to an extent that was kind of the idea of why they could do something against it when individual children couldn't because they were connected differently Mm. but stephen king delves into this in a lot of his stuff um this idea I mean, of different aspects of psychic power, whether it's well, Firestarter was the one. Firestarter was the one where it was the government experiments. On, they it was a whole lab yes. doing experiments on children yeah. to generate and if I remember powers. pyrokinetic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, that book came out in the early '80s, and so these kind of stories, even before there was an internet or you know radio shows, like people knew that these kind of things were going on. I mean, even the stand. I mean, if you look at the the origin of the. The story there that the that the government is developing weapons in secret labs that could wipe out the entire Earth's population with a disease like, you know, this kind of paranoia about what is the government funding and, you know, what are they spending our tax dollars on that, that are, you know, either crackpot theories or really dangerous stuff was was kind of abroad in the culture in the late 70s. Again, post Watergate, it's really, really tough to imagine, you know. It's very easy to imagine the government doing this kind of stuff, and it's obvious that, like you know, Stephen King was at least uh, you know reading the kind of books that uh, said, "Hey, you know, we've got this secret research lab where people are doing psychic experiments," and it was like, "Oh, that sounds like a good idea for a book." <laughs> well, the mist was part of that too. King used a lot of, of a lot of oh, yeah. government conspiracy. That's that, that, God, that short story, The Mist, was one of the few books that really freaked the hell out of me when I read it. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that was that was. That was probably one of his one of his favorite short stories from him. Um, it was another idea where like there was like an extra dimensional breach basically, and that the army was responsible for it essentially. Yeah, yeah there was a lab that they I don't remember what it was called, but it was nobody really knew, but it that's what they suspected is that they were doing some research up there, and so they got out of control. The kind of the classic hmm. uh, government can't contain what it's creating type of thing. Then yeah. you move into Close Encounters with Spielberg. Spielberg was another guy that was very much had his finger on the pulse of of esoterica behind the scenes government stuff. What he oh, that yeah. was all alien abduction. That was all alien kind of stuff. But no, um, you really hit it with Stephen King. He, you really, when you start looking at his books, there is a real thread of this, this psychic connection. I mean, that's really yeah. different aspects. A yeah. lot of his stories and books revolve around the idea of an extrasensory something with well, the shining, whether it's you know, and then, yeah, uh, shining is one the of the sequel to it. Um, me and you've both read it. We talked oh, about uh, Dr. Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a great book too. Yeah. 
And and of course, this leads us to talk about Ghostbusters, which you mentioned kind of as a joke yep. earlier with uh, <laughs> Venkman doing his negative reinforcement experiment. What's that? It's just a bunch of squiggly lines. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but think about think about that for a second. The setup of that movie is that these guys have been comfortable in the academy for like 10, 12 years. They all have their PhDs in parapsychology, which were real things that people got in the 70s. There were parapsychology programs out there where you could get a PhD in it. And then all of a sudden in 1983-84, the funding gets cut off. The government's no longer sending this money to the university to give these guys the ability to do all these, you know, spiritualist and, and psychic experiments. And so they have to go into private business. It's the it's the Reagan era's dream of like entrepreneurship. And who's the bad guys in Ghostbusters? It's the EPA. You know, it's sort of this this twisting of what was going on in the 70s where the government was freely spending on these psychic experiments. All of a sudden in the 80s, it gets closed down. Now, obviously, fringe research in the 80s goes in a different direction, right? It goes into Star Wars. It goes into, um, uh, you know, any num- number of other sort of Reagan-era um, secret plans. I did an article recently on Mirror of the Mutants about the uh, the Rex 84 conspiracy theory where, you know, in case of massive uh, social unrest, we have these 10 concentration camps spread across America ready to go to take in political oh, yeah. dissidents. And yeah, keep them and it's still up. a very prominent theory today. That's one of the ones that's been thrown out there by uh, Alex Jones. That's the default. Like the UN's going to come in with their white trucks, and you've got these, uh, can, you know, these camps. And uh, yeah, it, t- it happened a couple of years ago. There was an ice cream, blue bunny ice cream, I believe it was, got somehow tied into or, or something like that because people saw this convoy of of blue bunny ice cream trucks, and somebody went on the internet and said that these trucks are going out to. <laughs> Do you remember that when that all went down a few I, years ago? Well, what, what makes me laugh about that is that that goes right back to Close Encounters. When they were trying to set up the base in Wyoming, they disguised all of their trucks as Baskin Robbins yeah. and like Piggly Wiggly trucks. And yeah. it was like that that idea is, again, very old in the culture. But in the 80s, like you, you're right, like the Alex Jones Infowars, you know, right wing anti UN side of things is it, that's been their territory for the past you know, 15, 20 years. But in the 80s, it was left wing activists who were afraid of these concentration camps because of wars in Central America. And and the idea was that they were going to take these plans from the 60s where they had all these, um, if there's a race war, what are we going to do and how are we going to, you know, uh, you know, intern all of, you know, black Americans or, you know, uh, Latino Americans and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So this, this this conspiracy theory, you can just swap the um, the oh, yeah, labels. Oh, it bounces on it. back and forth every so many years. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's you can see the beginnings of it beginning to swap now. That now that you have Trump in office and the Republicans are in office and so forth, you can see the beginnings of, like you can see it starting to shift again already right now with everything that's going on. It's really Absolutely. strange. It's it's like whoever's in power, it doesn't matter who it is, is the enemy. I mean, I remember when when Bush was in <laughs> office, it was like Bush is the enemy. Bush is Bohemian Grove, blah blah. And then when Obama goes into power, well, Obama is part of the Illuminati and Obama this and Obama that. Yeah. Blah, blah, and these things are all out there and the way that people take all of these things and, and combine them together, it's just kind of, it's like, it's like Legos. It's kind of interchangeable, you know, it's like, absolutely you know, let's, yeah. let's change it up for now. Let's change this Lego out to that Lego and make it what it is. But again, I go back to, um, it blows my mind how much this stuff has had a cultural impact on mm. all of the movies and all of the things that we've grown up with over the years and how oh, much yeah. this stuff has paid, played into sci science fiction and all of these things to push it all along forward. Like, the damn millennials but the kids nowadays it's like they don't 
you know, I guess it's different because they're used to growing up in this world of conspiracy and things like that. So yeah. it, that those kind of movies and stuff don't quite pay off the way they used to. You know, it's 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 different now. But when we were growing up, we had shows like In Search of and things like that to pull strings off of to make these movies and to release these books and to make these things happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things. When you mentioned Stranger Things earlier, I mean, that's kind of... You know, the the sort of idea that that in the 80s this kind of stuff was still happening. But if you look at the the sort of backstory that they give for the experiments there, they 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 uh, they insert some of the uh, thread, like the MK Ultra thread, where yeah. you know people are being drugged and that's causing. I think that was even the bit in Firestarter. I think they were um, like injected with a serum or something like that. You know yeah, what that I mean? Yeah, that was that was one of the big ideas with that going on back then. Is we need to alter the brain to unlock portions of the brain to be able to do this. Like the Montauk experiment, what they would supposedly do is they would take people in, they would drug you, they would break you down, and essentially turn you into a psychic machine, for lack of a better word. And that right. was all that they wanted. You know, it was basically the whole MK Ultra mind control. It all tied together with the Montauk project yeah. but if you look at stranger things it's set in the 80s and it's got all of those things you know joe we we've talked about this before where it's got a, it's got like elements of et and all those movies and stuff that we were really into as a kid they pay a really good homage to all those without going too far into it to the point of cheesiness and i think that's why stranger things worked is because they didn't try to set it in modern times they yeah. knew this is where it needs to take place if you tried to set that show in a modern area at modern era i don't think it would work because the, those legends don't quite play into what's going on right now, you know. It's 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 a because that stuff all happened then. Whereas it works it works in the eighties because that was when all this stuff was supposed to be taking place. Yeah. Well, it's not only that, but there's also one of the things that when you think about books like uh, the Stephen King books or the way Stranger Things is set, and this is one of the things is one of the first reference points that I had for Stranger Things was actually the mist because it is that same idea that there was somebody messing around with something. They couldn't control it. It got out, and now it is making its way around in a small town. That's really what the mist does. This mist mm -hmm. isolates the town and creates a small setting so that there is no external forces that can save them or get in or know about it. It's sort of it's claustrophobic. It moves inward. Well, that's what you do with the 80s because you lose cell phone, broadband internet, 24-7 mm -hmm. uh, news cycle. You've now given a – instead of condensing the area down to a point, what you've instead done is isolate by having no external factors. This is a town that's cut off, not because it's, it's bordered in, but because there is no spread of information the way there is now. So that's – it's all related in that way, and that's why setting it in that time was smart. Because you could yeah. say nobody would would um, post this to Facebook in two seconds. No one would <laughs> have a conspiracy board where they would say, oh, yeah, what they've done is they've tapped into the upside down. And that's where that creature's coming from. The easy way to dispel it is to put, you know, pop rocks around your uh, your uh, the front of your house for three nights <laughs> when the full moon's out. It'll go away. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, have either of you guys seen a movie called Beyond the Black Rainbow? It's oh, my God. Do time. I love that yeah. goddamn movie. That's one of my favorite films. <laughs> I mean, that to me, uh, that to me nailed it on so many levels, not just because it was inspired by a lot of the, again, like, you know, John Carpenter and other sort of early 80s, you know, atmospheric sort of directors who really dealt in that sort of eerie dread. But again, the setup of that entire thing is, okay, we've got this private institute that's trying to expand the borders of what the human mind can do. And they conduct experiments on innocent people and all of a sudden create this psychic assassin. And it's sort of like... You know, not only visually is it is it perfect for the time period it's set and and sort of very visually striking in that way, but like all of the themes we've been talking about, um, private institutes being funded by the government, 
uh, being taken over by people who just want to weaponize these things instead of use them to expand, you know, human consciousness. It's all there in that movie, and it's uh, apart from that, it's just a really, really great film. Wasn't Altered yeah, States based along those lines too? Oh God! Well, Altered, Altered States, States is the, about uh, John Lilly. Um, yeah, that's basically the uh, isolation tank idea and where your mind can go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you got you got John Lilly who did these experiments with dolphins, trying to communicate with them. That led to the Day of the Dolphin movie and the idea of a. <laughs> a dolphin being trained to assassinate foreign leaders. But but again, they were trying to expand these horizons. And with Altered States, you've got this idea of like devolution and like connecting with an earlier kind of, you know, sort of human consciousness. And, and uh, I think it's no surprise that the book Altered States was written by Patty Chayefsky, who did Network, another very prophetic movie about sort of the, 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 the Cold network. War. Yeah, I mean, and, <laughs> and the network. sort of post-Cold War media and cultural consensus. Ratings, sort of, ratings, ratings. It's Max, Yeah, but Max it still Hedrum. plays into this day. Max Hedrum's another one. All of those old shows play so much into yep. what's going on right now. They predicted exactly, exactly what was going to happen with a 24-hour news cycle in stations. Mm-hmm. The thing that yep. I actually really liked about Beyond the Black Rainbow, and a lot of people couldn't get through it because they felt it was boring, which I would tell you, sit through it. It's great. But whatever. The, <laughs> You're it, wrong. It, Try it, it again, based, sir. <laughs> it, they are wrong. It, what it was based on was the idea that it, there was this very hippie attitude towards using drugs to alter yourself. And what happens is basically the main thrust of the film is there can be a negative side to that. Yes, you could connect with all of nature and and be better, but you could also be worse. And that's mm-hmm. what ultimately the movie centers around is a guy who went through this this mind altering thing and came out as a nut. I mean, basically yeah. as a, as a uh, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what he is, but he, he seems like some kind of demon or he thinks he is, whatever he is. Yeah. And he's trying to, I always, I never really understood whether he was trying to make another version of himself or try to do it the correct way. I never really got what his motivation, but you're not really supposed to. This wasn't a movie that explains everything. Yeah. I think, I think Elena, I think the idea is that very much like Eleven and Stranger Things, they want her to be like a psychic assassin, essentially. That's why he sets up the lab assistant to get killed and like, what can she do with her powers when we take down the dampeners? You know what I mean? When we remember those dampeners pyramid shaped, there you go. Yes. There was yes. a lot of very interesting seventies <laughs> yes. imagery in that movie. It yeah. was very clearly, it was supposed to be the result of the seventies in the eighties. That's what it was. Like yeah, exactly. okay, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. When you got to a certain point, what do people start doing with it when they, they have the tools, but don't really know what it's going to do yeah, or, absolutely. you know, because that's what the, I don't remember how long. I mean, the guy himself who got whatever warped, he was clearly younger when it happened. Mm-hmm. So that would have probably been late 70s, at least that he went through whatever he did. And then, I, of course, I, that resulted as in the 80s. I think the title uh, card flashback uh, said like 1966 or something like that. Oh, so okay, it was so like a, okay. it was like, you know, they paint a third eye on their forehead and they go into this like alternate, you know, yeah, into this pool. Yeah, there you or, go. Exactly. Yeah. Or scanners. Scanners is another one. Yeah. You look at scanners and there All is of, the same idea of the weaponized psychic. Yes. All of Cronenberg's late 70s, early 80s uh, output has these creepy corporations. You've got the one in the brood. Uh, Videodrome has, you know, I was going to say Videodrome. Uh, you got yeah, Videodrome that's religion. Has, that's religion as the corporation. Yes, exactly. You've got spectacular optical and, and uh, you know, the fact that Videodrome is being put together by this combination of like media theorists and, you know, uh, corporations that sell weapon systems to NATO, you know, like it's, it's, you know, Cronenberg doesn't, he gets a lot of credit for body horror, but he doesn't get a lot of credit for his social and like 
political commentary that happens in these movies. And I think he was, he probably looked at all of these, you know, independent research institutes. There were a bunch of them in Canada at the time too, that were doing psychic research and, you know, just said to himself, this is a little creepy. This is a little bit eerie. And if they're linking up with government, what are they going to try to do to us as far as things like mind control and that kind of thing? Well, ultimately, all you have to do is look at, I don't remember what the disease was that the government tested out on African-Americans. What was it? Was oh, it Tuskegee Institute. Uh, Tuskegee experiments. Exactly. What did they like, give? Or syphilis. syphilis. What did they give? Syphilis. 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 Yeah. 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 Well, once you know that that's fact and that happened. Mm-hmm. There's no point where you say, well, what other line wouldn't they cross depending on how they viewed what the output would be or what the result would be. Exactly. And so you can go anywhere with that. So the idea that yeah. they would give pregnant women these this drug or whatever it was that they were giving them that would create psychic children, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Once you realize that they decided to give a horrible disease to a certain group of people just to see what would happen, you know, how it would affect them. Well, it's just like the MK Ultra case with that guy that they dosed and then he jumped out the window. I mean, it's it's um even they'd, even they'd even drug their own people if it meant that they could actually get some, you know, uh, experimental data from it. You know, I mean, the other thing about the other thing about MK Ultra is they did a lot of their experiments abroad. They did a bunch of them in Canada as well. So, like, you know, this was an idea. You try to use the most expendable piece of people possible, which, again, is just this idea that came out of, you know, Operation Paperclip, Nazi, you know, sort of like, you know, legacy of, of experimentation on human beings and and, you know, uh, non-ethical uh, experimentation on human beings. And uh, this guy, Sidney Gottlieb, who was the MK Ultra, you know, head, I mean, he's probably one of the one of the most evil uh, sort of like personages from that Cold War intelligence period, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, just just sort of rampantly dosing people and uh, and 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 taking a look and see what happens. I mean, it was just it was just kind of horrible stuff that our government did. And it's all fact. It's all real. Mm hmm. Well, let me ask you this before we jump in, because we're, we're winding towards the end here. Um, mm. I do want to ask you this before we jump out of this topic, though. What do you ultimately believe happened? Do you think that there was any success with any of this stuff? Because this, you're talking about a program that went on for, realistically, 30 years, something like that? Yeah, That's yeah, a long much. time to spend a lot of money and a lot of time to put into a program that ultimately was shut down and had no results. I mean, yeah. You know, so, you know, what do you think happened? Because I, I just don't see a program going that way. Then again, we are talking about governments, but <laughs> mm, yeah, you know, it's an awful long time to run a program like that to, to suddenly say, well, none of this is real. It's all it's all been a waste of time and money. You know, it's like, well, you guys did this for a long time. So, yeah. You know, and also, how much of this stuff do you think like the how much do you think the Russians were just trolling us, putting this stuff out there to try to get us right. to waste money? Well, I mean, this is the thing. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys, you guys have talked about Mirage Men at some point, right? I mean, like, no, not it, it, on my show, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we've talked well, about Project Serpo. We we have to a to a certain extent, yes, but not not yeah. a whole lot. We had Greg Bishop on, who uh, has done some research in that uh, that realm, but um, we don't spend a lot of time talking to it. So that's why I'm glad I got you here because we we don't tap into this subject enough. Okay. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna remain agnostic on whether psychic powers actually exist or not. I think these days the the, the new hotness is talking about the quantum nature of the brain, right? Like that's the new sort yeah. of like 2010s quantum kind is of the you know, buzzword. Avenue. It's like clear yeah. things from back in 1980 when you had clear Pepsi and clear gas and everything was clear. <laughs> now it's quantum. Oh, drug. Crystal Pepsi was the best. I'm still trying to find some of that. They anyway. just re-released it last year. How can you not find it? I've got a bottle because sitting it, on my you know shelf. What? Some son of a bitch, let me tell you. I've been looking for it and nobody's <laughs> got it. And no kidding, my wife and I went for, we go for walks and we were coming back and somebody had thrown a bottle out the window. I pick it up because I don't like litterers, litter, litterers, litter bugs, whatever it is. 
and it's a crystal Pepsi bottle, the son of a bitch. And I'm like, I can't find this. And you're throwing a bottle. Up. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. If I find some, I'll mail you some, Joe. I, I've got I've got an empty. Bottle I would appreciate sitting. it. I'll take I'll hook you up. Relax. It's OK. It's going to be all right. <laughs> so I will remain agnostic on whether, you know, ESP and, and clairvoyance and all these other powers actually exist. But look, let's think about this for a second. What would be a great way for the government to hide a, a sort of black budget? Put it in something that's so absurd and so on on its face ridiculous to the average you know newspaper reader in the 1980s uh, that they they'll go I can't believe the government spent X number of dollars on you know Project Stargate at, at Fort Meade like how could they how dare they waste my money like that What if that's hiding something even more secret I mean Fort Meade is right around you know it's in Maryland it's right around Washington D.C. There's tons of there's um there's Fort Detrick where all the germ warfare and other research happen. What, what would be a better way for an intelligence agency or the U.S. In, uh, Army intelligence or armed forces intelligence apparatus to hide? Oh, privatize uh, it. You just privatize well, it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that because you can you, you can do request of information on government records, but you can't walk in. You can't walk into Apple and say, hey, I want documents showing me the iPhone nine that you're working on right now. They're going to be like, screw you. You've got no right to be here. We don't have to give you any of that. Once you there privatize you I mean, something, you can do whatever you hear. Here's a company. We'll just here's black budget. We'll just dump money into it. What are they doing there? We don't know. We can't sequester the records. Can't tell you. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about it, the role that SRI had in all these programs I mean to to kick off this entire remote viewing you know, story. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you you contract it out. You you give it to other people. I mean, and it goes right down to today with things like you know Blackwater and everything else. Like they're they're private operators. They're paid by the government. So, to me, I think that's one of the reasons why these were so popular. But I have to among the U.S. sort of defense apparatus. But I I do agree with you. I think that the Soviets um, expressing interest in this made it so that we had to at least match it, whether it was on the surface just for intelligence purposes or counterintelligence purposes or not. I mean, when you think about what happened in the 80s when the U.S. was saying that they were developing the Star Wars SDI program, even though the technology wasn't there, the Soviets found out about it and they realized that they had to go to the table again and negotiate with the Reagan administration. So all of a sudden, these fringe science programs they have a real uh, intelligence and counterintelligence role to play. And I think ultimately all of this remote viewing, all of this stuff, it, it's, it's, pl- it's playing on a different level of the chessboard, essentially. It's playing on a kind of meta level, on an intelligence level. And I think that, that if, you, if you look through the documents from that Stargate archive, you'll see that, you know, they spend, you're right, they spend 20, 30 years researching this. Nothing comes of it. But I'll tell you what comes out of it, a lot of paperwork and a lot of <laughs> a lot of distraction for anybody, any enemy agent that might be trying to uh, look into it. Do you think these projects are still going on today privately? Do you think that's actually happening? I, I don't know if the government is funding projects like this, but I, I do think that sort of there's there is, like I said, that cottage industry that grew up in the 90s is still pretty much going strong. And I, I think that, again, it's just like the UFO phenomenon. If we accept that a lot of it is manufactured in a, in a way to kind of keep people away from, you know, uh, top secret uh, aviation projects, for instance, you know, at a certain point, the, the UFO story takes on a mind of its own and a life of its own, and it, it does the work for you. And I think that a lot in a lot of ways, the, you know, fringe science and, and psychic research that was going on took on a life of its own and it served a purpose. Yeah, I could, yeah, I could see that completely. Well, that's what happened with, uh, I believe it was Project Serpo. They just fed all the disinformation to the guy and told him, yeah, UFOs are real, and 
pretty much mm-hmm. drove them nuts, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, all right, let's move on uh, before we wrap this up. Tell us about We Are the Mutants. Tell us about, we were talking about it wait, before. Wait, 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 wait. There oh. was one thing I wanted to, I wanted to say oh. I, about, the, uh, about whether it's real or not. Go ahead. Go ahead. I had this idea at one point that whether it's real or not, I don't know. But what I'm guessing is, even if it is, even if you can do remote viewing, psychic stuff, all this stuff, what might explain, this is a weird analogy, but I, I'm kind of doing the computer as a brain thing here. WiMAX was supposed to be the big wireless thing. But then they found out that it didn't work at scale. It couldn't actually grow because it ran into interference and all these other problems. And what I've wondered is, okay, let's say there is the ability to remote view and all the rest of it. Think about the interference that exists on a global scale. You're trying to project your mind to another country halfway around the globe. Mm. Maybe it do- It could actually be done if there wasn't so much interference. It might actually be a real thing that will never be able to be done simply because of the amount of interference from the environment and the atmosphere and all the rest of it that distorts the signals. Same thing that you have problems with wireless. It is possible this is actually based on a real thing, but simply can't work. Might explain mm. the 40% rate because there's such a loss in signal or so much interference that you simply can't do it. Anyway, it's just I, well, no, I, I agree with you. I believe that there is something to this stuff purely, f- as I said earlier, purely for the fact that this program went on for so long. You know, yeah. there is there is instances where, you know, between a mother and a daughter where you have kind of an unspoken thing going on at a distance. You have it happening with husbands, twins, and wives. twins. You have it. You have police officers that have a higher rate of intuitiveness and can pick up things. Um, you know, it's. There's so many instances of this stuff, but the problem is, is so much of this stuff is fleeting and so much of the stuff, because it's not a consistent thing, kind of like what you're saying, that it really can't, I don't think there's a, a real way to, to really judge this stuff or to be able to put a scientific method to it because it's just not a consistent thing. Yeah. You know, it's like you've got people in the world that can see ultraviolet colors because for whatever reason, their eyes can see ultraviolet light and ultraviolet colors. But... Mm-hmm. You know, if you go back 100 years before anybody knew what ultraviolet light was and you're trying to tell them, yeah, I can see this color, that color, that color or whatever, they're going to think that you're nuts. And it's not so much that extra extra sensory perception. I think it is a possibility because the brain does weird things. The brain works in really strange ways, you know. Yeah. And uh, And I think when you've got an individual like take Yuri Geller, for instance, he's he's a talented individual who's got the ability to. Any of these people who are traditional sort of stage magicians or illusionists, like they get the ability to to influence people's wills and get yeah. them to look in different directions. And and when it comes to like so when it comes right down to it, certain levels of empathy uh, that are sort of you know hypersensitive will look like ESP to us yes. because you'll be able to sense an emotional state or look at the look in someone's eye when you're kind of again cold reading them. Like they're practically so close to ESP as to be ESP. So. Why not just call it what it is, which is a heightened normal sense? It's extra normal, I guess, is the best way to put it. I've also read of instances when when the army is teaching, like when you go up behind somebody to go up behind them and slit their throat or stab them back or do whatever, the coup de grace, don't think about what you're going to do. Think about something else. You know, don't project out there what you're doing because there's a possibility that people could pick this up or something along those lines mm. is what's taught to people. It's like, well, why would you be telling people that, you know, if like, you know, I... I, I do believe that there's something to this stuff. Now, as for what yeah. it actually is, much like all of the great urban legends and myths and stories about all this stuff, the truth is somewhere mired down with all of the muck, you know, because yeah. um, I just don't see 30 years of research and all of the money and all of the time that went into all of this stuff to suddenly, you know, they had to have gotten something useful out of that. The question is, is what did they get that was useful? Mm. And 
just because you do a, um, and I'm not saying, I'm kind of walking that line here of real and not real, but it's like you said earlier, you know, you can't throw, you you might throw 10 people into a room and say, here, draw the, it's like those little things that used to send out in the magazines where if you drew a turtle, you know, or whatever it was, (laughs) you could send it back and, you know, some people just can't draw. Some people are tone deaf. Some people, you know, everybody has their own individual talents or whatever you want to call it. So if you put 30 people into a room, okay, well, you don't have the ability, you don't have the ability and you weed it out and you get the people that do have the stuff you know all right well we'll just push you off to the side here and you know well the program's a failure but we're going to put these guys over here in research Mm -hmm. you know it's it could be one of those things where some people are just more adept at doing it and some people are not but yeah you know again then uh, now we're adding to the muck in the mire (laughs) (laughs) but uh, for me anyway that's the fun of it is kind of diving into these documents i mean I, i when i downloaded that uh the archive uh you know, I put it all on my iPad and like I'm I'm probably like one twentieth of the way through it. I've got like, a th- you know, thousands of documents to go through. And it's like, you know, just the sheer amount of noise. There's got to be some signal in there like we were talking about a little earlier. So. So you actually yeah, I agree. You, you've got you've got the documents and you're digging through them because you 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 sound you've, you've done a lot of research on this. I can tell that you're not fucking around. You really you've put some work into this. <laughs> I, I have, I have, I have kind of floated the idea that maybe at some point, if I were to go into kind of a, a grad program in history of science, I might focus on cold war era pseudoscience and uh, research like this and, oh, and just kind awesome. of approach it from a more sort of sociological and, uh, and political standpoint and kind of look at the kind of questions we were just asking, why fund this stuff? Why spend so much time on it? What purpose did it really serve? You know, because again, if you're not a believer, you have to have you have to feel like there's got to be some explanation for your government spending this much time on this. Well, the only other so. time I've seen stuff like this is with the Nazis. Like you could walk into right. when the Nazis were, you could do anything you wanted with Nazi research. If you walked in and said, hey, I've got an idea for this, this, and this, you know, okay, here you go. Go see if there's something to it. I mean, they researched magic. They, I'm sure they probably researched sure. some of this stuff as well. But, Absolutely. You know, but even then, I don't, I don't, they didn't spend as much time with it, probably because of the length of the war, et cetera. But, you know, exactly. who knows? Because um, yeah. now stories of the Nazi bell are resurfacing and all that kind of stuff. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I tend to wonder, you know, how much of this stuff was real and how much of it is still going on today? Another thing that fascinates me is if it were going on today, the technology that we have now is so much more advanced yeah. to be able to pull this kind of stuff off. You know, one of the sort of, one of the sort of wild theories I have about why they spent so much time with remote viewing is that I remember I mentioned earlier how a lot of the, the advances in computer technology were happening at the same time in the same place. I, I've kind of wondered if remote viewing was meant as a, a as a method of psychological preparation for the day we would have drones like we have today where we can surveil and kill people at a distance and whether putting all these people into these labs and seeing what it felt like for them to, to surveil and, and pretend to, you know, attack, you know, uh, Soviet targets was, was in a way just a preparation for the day the technology would catch up. Um, and I, there I've would often be... wondered, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's, that's all I was going to say. I wonder if it's not just exactly like so many things that we've, we've seen where the, the psychic ability is the the tool and all the different research was, okay, what can we do with it? If mm. this thing exists, uh, is there, or, or even if it, it only exists in certain ways, let's fan out and see if there is an avenue that we can demonstrate hmm. reliability. And so it may not be remote viewing. It might be short range confusion. You get close to someone and you can get them off, off kilter enough to either kidnap them, interrogate them, whatever. Yeah. Just think about if you could even make it work in a short range fashion where you get into a room with two people 
And the one person can essentially truth serum the other person without ever having to administer a drug. A uh, No marks, no drugs in the system. The interrogation took place, but they can never prove it. It's a great tool if you can get it to work. And maybe you yeah. can't project into Russia, but if you can project with inside of a six-foot room, that's as powerful a tool, if not better, than oh, yeah. being able There's to a sketch a, right a building somewhere. You yeah, send, you send a, a you send a news operative into a room when the president's giving some kind of a speech or giving some kind of a sure. address or something. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's toast him a little bit yep. here. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay, so you want to move on to we are the mutants now? Or are we? Yeah, sure. Do? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, as I said earlier, both Joe and myself are big fans of your webpage. Tell us about tell us about the the blog. Tell us about we are the mutants and what it is and what you do there and I know how long how long it's been around for because it seems to have exploded a lot within the last year and a half or so. Well, we we just started six months ago. We, okay, we that's started probably in, why it exploded. <laughs> <laughs> we started in August. Um, the predecessor blog to We Are the Mutants was a blog called Two Warps to Neptune, uh, uh, run by our editor in chief Kelly Roberts and. Um, uh, that was more sort of pop culture oriented and and more sort of focused on that end of things. Um, I was a big fan of that blog, and I kind of um, uh, I kind of sent out a, a flyer to to Kelly saying, you know, hey, um, really like to uh, to warp to Neptune. I love when you do stuff that has to do with the paranormal and you know from that era from the '70s and like you know you're planning to do anything more in that line. He's like, well, not I'm not planning to do any more with that on two warps, but. I, I'm playing this new blog and I'm like, well, I've, I've been doing some blogging on this kind of stuff. Take a look at what I've written. And we got together and, and kind of with Kelly, myself and, and our other senior editor, Richard McKenna, uh, kind of put together our sort of plan for what this blog was going to look like, what the site was going to look like. And, and basically we wanted to kind of take the forgotten things from that period, from that cold war period. And, you know, the, the sort of idea behind the, behind the magazine is that we are, you know, excavating the world after it's been destroyed and we're kind of unearthing all of these, you know, little artifacts and pieces of media and uh, all kinds of stuff from the, you know, we focus on the 60s, 70s and 80s, but we're basically anything between the end of World War II and the end of the Cold War, 45 to 89, that's our sort of bailiwick. And, and we try to pick things that people don't know a whole lot about, um, you know, try to bring back the forgotten uh, things that maybe got ignored while they were around because maybe they were considered disposable. Um, you know, we have we have departments that that range all the way from like you know, um, you know, industrial design, uh, popular music. We did a video, uh, a music video week the other week where we talked about some of the odder sort of <laughs> examples of music video from the '80s, and we do have an occult and paranormal section, which, like I said, I think I'm probably the one who's kind of given that as kind of their uh, their portfolio. You and guys so you know, ran an ad for the Uzi from 1980. The the original like Uzi, oh. uh, magazine insert. <laughs> it's amazing. One of my I mean, favorite and, and the fact, guns, the Uzi. And, Love the and, Uzi. The, and the fact that that used the 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 neon grid in the background. Yeah, everything was neon bit. grids. Um, <laughs> Even I Uzi ads. Yeah. <laughs> I sent it to Joe. You guys ran an article in there about the uh, the escape from New York about when the when the glider is flying and the guidance system he used with yes. the 3d modeling and all that. And, yeah. well, um, and the fact that the city was actually made, people think it's primitive uh, CG. It is not. It's, not. <laughs> it's, it's black lit yeah. actual physical surface. The CG Absolutely. didn't exist at the time to be able to do that. And I never knew that. I was just like, yeah. Yeah, was, you know, technology existed to do that. And See, uh, yeah, that, that's, kind of, that's exactly the kind of stuff we like to do. At we are the mutants is like, even if it's, even if it's not something that like is an urban legend that people have always believed, but like just, just resurrecting stuff that, 
you know, you're like, oh, that makes sense that that would exist at the time, but I never knew it actually existed. Like, I'm just scrolling through our occult and paranormal section. The shoulder right pads now. had uh, Thunderdome oh, on, yeah. so of course I read that, <laughs> because if I see Thunderdome, I'm in. But I mean, you know, you guys were around in the 80s. You remember how oh, yeah. prominent those shoulder oh, yeah. pads were in women's fashion and like on TV and stuff. And like, there's a reason for it, because the 80s was a was 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 a, a shift away from the organic sort of flowing fashions of the 70s and things became a little more militarized they became a little bit more masculinized you know so there's the ordinary objects and i i believe this cuz i'm a i'm a museum professional by 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 day job but like ordinary objects can tell us so much about the culture outside of them it's really important to take a look at the material culture of a time and place because it tells you so much more even than you know uh, a news report or a journalistic account or oh my god you've you know, got yuri geller's strike board game on here from 1986 i'm so sorry to interrupt you i just saw this and i was like <laughs> what the hell i mean there you go that that's that's a perfect example of what yuri was doing after he didn't get any money from the u.s oh government. my god everybody listening to <laughs> this know, needs to go to we are the mutants.com and look up the yuri geller strike board game from 1986 because this is insane. <laughs> also, yeah. look at the uh, the Ralph McQuarrie illustrations for Robot Visions. I talk about that book all the time. Yeah. That's one of my go-to Asimov books. And a lot of people have never read it. Mm, yeah, and don't yeah. know some of the stories in it, which are, there's some really great short story. I'm a big short story person. So some mm. of the Asimov stories in there are among the best things he's ever written. Yeah, uh, we, spent a, so. we spent a week on board games, you know, because again, like, you know, again, they're, they're disposable little pieces of pop culture, but they, they tell it like I did an article with, with the guy I do a podcast with uh, about this disaster board game from 1979. It took every single disaster movie trope from the 70s. The airplane. Oh my God, it did. Wow. I'm, looking, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going, I, just, I mean, I can't help <laughs> you it. You know, the, the Poseidon Adventure, the Towering Inferno and put them in a board game. And why did we worry so much about these kind of disasters? Why was that the blockbuster like, well, why was that the blockbuster format before Star Wars came along? Because people were worried about decay. They were worried about the, you know, sort of the all these pieces of infrastructure that we had built during this, you know, height of the Cold War period starting to crumble because of the energy crisis and the loss of confidence after Watergate. Like, again, the all these things are related. And I think that one of the powerful things about writing for We Are the Mutants is that even something as simple as a as a board game or, a, you know, a, a, a record LP or something like that can tell you a lot about the time and place it was made. And um, that's why I write for the, for the magazine. And that's why I, I, I love writing about it. Michael, it's been a lot of fun having you on here talking to you. Um, again, I was really blown away by the amount of research and stuff you've put into this because your posts are small. So I was like, eh, we'll get a couple of things out of them. We'll talk about it. And I was absolutely <laughs> not expecting, uh, expecting this. This has been a lot of fun. You know, you've, you've been a great guest. I can tell you're a podcaster too. Do you want to promote your podcast by chance uh, or no? <laughs> well, 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 speaking, speaking of disposable pop culture from the seventies and eighties, um, I do a podcast about the seventies and eighties sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. Um, and we take a very similar approach. My co-host Rob McDougall and I take a very similar approach. We, we look at the episode, we talk a little bit about the characters and the plot, and then we kind of go into what was going on at the time and, how the sort of like plot of the episode uh, really reflects uh, uh, politics, pop culture, that kind of thing. Uh, the podcast is called Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser. Uh, it's an in-joke from from WKRP's syndicated years. I won't explain it. It will take too long. But you can find us on the uh, on the web at holdmyorderterribledresser.com. And we're on uh, Twitter at holdmyorderwkrp. I, I am ashamed to say that I was a huge fan of that show. Um, oh, you shouldn't be. It's it's probably one of the 
it's probably one of the smartest sitcoms going on at that time. One of the things Um, that I remember more than anything from that show was when the who did their concert down in Ohio, it was general admission and the doors open and all those people got killed and they actually addressed it on that show because they, they, yeah, they they, put out that episode five or six weeks after that happened. Like they, they really rushed it into production and they, they felt like they owed it to the rock fans in Cincinnati. They felt they couldn't, realistically portray a radio station if they didn't at least talk about it i remember the care i remember less 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 nesman the guy who did not have the walls for his office and he would act like he was opening <laughs> closing the door uh herb tarlick uh dr johnny fever um yes the disco episode where they made him like this this disco star show uh you got i think it was called gotta dance and gotta at the dance, end of it they're yeah. like yeah you got kicked off the show so he grabbed all the whiskey and uh, all the alcohol and ran out the door <laughs> yeah I, re- I remember the show vividly i remember the turkey bombs when they were they had to try to do the uh turkey they were releasing the turkeys from the helicopters and they discovered that turkeys couldn't fly and were bombing turkeys on the, the parking lot Hey, if you're going to listen to one of our episodes, listen to the one about uh, Turkey's Away because we, we try to tie it into an overarching occult theory of WKRP. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so check that episode out if you're going to check one out and you're a fan I of this I can't podcast. believe I remember all this stuff off the top of my head. And then they did the reunion episode, which I didn't like. It was kind of meh. It was... Yeah, we, we, we talked about that series. Uh, actually, recently for our April Fool's episode, we did an episode from the 90s and it was not... Uh, not up to snuff. It was not up to the standards of the no. original, that's for sure. Well, but uh, definitely check us out at We Are the Mutants as well. We're at wearethemutants.com, and uh, we're on uh, Twitter at We Are the Mutants. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Joe, thank you for coming on here and being a guest co-host tonight and filling the gap. I really appreciate it as well. I contributed little, but I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> it was just fun having you here because I know you're into the 80s and everything. So, I am very much. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Joe, do you want to uh, give your po- podcast a shout-out real quick, as I always give you the chance to do? Sure. OzoNightmare.com. I don't know how to describe it. It's audio junk, but enjoy. It's McDonald's for your ears. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thanks. You take care. Thank you. All right. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. Life is a mystery. Confusion is all around us. The truth is out there, but you won't find it here. Maybe it was the ghost of an alien that worked for the government. You know, you remove the alien anal probe out of the story and it probably wasn't this guy's worst Saturday night. Welcome to Hysteria 51, a weekly oddcast of conspiracy theories, mysteries and the unexplained. All viewed through sceptical eyes and the blurry lens of a beer bottle. Listen to Brent and John make sense of it all each week. By subscribing, find us on iTunes by searching Hysteria 51 or anywhere else fine podcasts are sold. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. 
My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. Ah, Aaron, I just love that deep thumping bass that you throw into your promo there with the weird, hideous, demonic laughter at the end of it. Anyways, thank you to Michael for coming onto the show from the We Are The Mutants blog. Do go over and check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite blogs, and I'm there every couple of days just uh, checking out to see what's up there. Again, thank you, awesome. And yes, to Aaron, I was getting your text during the show, and I'm putting that out there because I know you like to hear it, and since Lobo was off this week and you had nobody else to bother, you were bothering me. But uh, thank you to Joe from Ozone Nightmare. I don't even want to bother telling people to go check that show out because I know a lot of the people that listen listen to us already do go listen to Ozone Nightmare. Um, he was a great person to have here as a co-host for this because Joe has a deep love for all things um, nostalgia-oriented, uh, having to do with the 80s and everything. So he was a perfect fit to be able to come on here and just be in the background for all this and throw some stuff out there. I really do appreciate it. Uh, next week, we have no guest planned. That's right. We have decided to not do an interview next week because it's been a while since we've done any kind of a ramble cast or anything. And both myself and Lobo have just been finding all these weird, neat bits of stuff. And we keep throwing them into the folders on the desktop because we just keep having interviews on the show. So we decided not to do an interview next week. And yes, Lobo will be back. And we will actually be doing a show together for the first time in a little while. Um, but after that, we're going to jump back into the whole interview thing again because we have more great guests lined up. And as I said at the beginning of this, Lobo managed to nail down a really cool one for me. Having said all that, I'm going to uh, bring this one to a close because we're going on an hour and a half now. So uh, see everybody next week. This is Rojan from Detroit. Peace.
you recording, Joe? Yeah, it was perfect timing. I didn't even want to say anything. You started right when I hit the button. Well, I can edit this out. That's the beauty of it. I edit my oh, show. Oh, yeah, sure, Some people here edit oh, their yeah, podcasts. Editing. <laughs> editing. What is editing? I don't do editing. I, it's so you cut things, right? Out of film and then tape it together? Yeah, sure, that'll work. I've All heard right. of it. 